This morning we're going to be in the 110th Psalm. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter, Psalm chapter 110. So as I was preparing uh, and studying for this psalm, I read a lot of commentaries. And one commentary I read, mentioned, re- referring to this psalm, said that reading this psalm is like looking at a very large country on a small map. Sometimes these, uh, these guys, you know, from a few hundred years ago are hard to understand. But imagine today on your iPhone looking at, say, a map of Florida. Uh, you, can, you can see this is a good representation of Florida. You can see Lake Okeechobee. You can see the Panhandle. But that's a lot different than actually touring the state of Florida. And this psalm's like that. And the more I read it, the more I saw that. It's, it was only seven verses. So when I began to prepare, I was like, this is seven verses. It's easy. I got it. The more I studied, the, it just seemed like there was just more and more. And I'm not going to be able to plumb the depths of this psalm today. It's going to be... Uh, but I'm going to try to give us all a good surface-level understanding. And I may go a little long today, so just a warning. But hour and a half, we should be out of here. <laughs> Y'all will be at lunch. You don't have to worry about the lunch crowd because they're going to be gone taking naps. And, uh, but I'm just kidding. It's not going to take that long, maybe. I don't know. I'm just trusting the Lord up here. So Kristen told me that I, she insisted, I must say why this is my favorite psalm. And I, I first, when Dale asked me to choose a psalm, I first said Psalm 103. So I love that psalm. But then the night after, I just, Psalm 110 kept coming to mind. And so I asked Kristen, uh, I asked her to read them both and, and tell me which one I should do. She read them both, she said 103. So I picked 110. And, but the reason why I chose 110 is I, I asked her, why did, why did you choose 103 over 110? She says, I didn't really understand 110. So that's why we need to do Psalm 110. And also, this is my favorite psalm because it seems to be the favorite psalm of the New Testament writers. More than any other passage in the Old Testament, the New Testament authors reference this psalm more than any other passage. And you see it throughout the New Testament. You see this theme over and over and over again. And you see this chapter referenced over and over and over again. And I'm going to have, I'm going to make several references, but there's still so many more I'm not even going to touch because they reference this psalm so much. And since this is the favorite psalm of the New Testament writers, and, and since they're excited about this psalm, I think we should be excited about this psalm. This morning. If we love God's word, we should be excited about this psalm. So y'all excited? Y'all ready? Okay. So let's get into the psalm. And uh starts off with the superscription, a psalm of David. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And you may see why, why this may seem confusing at first reading. Because you have this talk of priests, you have these themes of priest and themes of king. And those don't seem to have immediate relevance to us in our culture. And also this, this shattering of kings and shattering of chiefs. And uh, I kind of like that language. But I can see why Kristen would, would make me insist why I say, why I chose this one. Um, I, I think this passage, this chapter, is best outlined breaking it down into two sections. So I broke it down from verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7. Because there's two oracles of the Lord here in this, in this chapter. You have the first oracle or utterance of the Lord in verse 1. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verses 2 through 3 are commentary on that or- oracle. And then in verse 4, there's the second oracle of the Lord. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then verses 5 through 7 are further commentary on that oracle. So the superscription reads a psalm of David. And usually we pass right over the superscription. We don't make much of it. It doesn't usually impact how we interpret the text. But this psalm, more than probably any other, the superscription actually is really important on how we understand the text. And no Hebrew manuscript omits this. You know, in, in, our, in our Bible, so like in my ESV, I have a title that says, Sit at my right hand. Now, we know this was added by the ESV translators. It's not part of Holy Scripture. But the superscription is a Psalm of David. So that's important. We shouldn't ignore it. And verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. In the English, it seems odd because you have the Lord speaking to the Lord but th- these words, actually, you, you have that uh, Lord in all caps. We know that's Yahweh. So Yahweh says to my, that word is Adonai. So Yahweh says to David's Adonai. Adonai is sometimes used to refer to God, but often used to refer to earthly masters. So when Sarah uh, called her husband Abraham uh, Lord, the word she used was Adonai. Uh, this could be, uh, another word could be master. So we could read this as, Yahweh says to David's master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But who's David's master? David's king of Israel. No one's greater than David in Israel. And since, since the New Testament refers to this chapter so often, I don't have to be a great interpreter to understand this. And I, I would say that's the way we should interpret most scripture. We're referring to clearer passages and, and the New Testament writers to help us understand these things. So I can tell you exactly who David's master is here. 
Uh, Jesus referred to this psalm when speaking to the Pharisees. Um, on the last week of Jesus' life, he was in the temple, and the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they had approached him, asking him a lot of questions. These were like gotcha questions. They were trying to test him. And the account I'm going to read is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45, if you want to go there. But in verse 15, it reads, they plotted how to entangle him. So you see the Pharisees, they were trying to trap him. They were asking him questions like, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Of course, for Jesus, it's easy to answer. He answered all the questions in perfect wisdom and in truth, even making the Pharisees look kind of stupid, making them look like they don't know what they're talking about, so it angered them. Now, uh, starting in verse 41, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. So they've been asking him questions, now he's going to ask them a question. Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. This is an easy, easy, easy question. They knew the answer right away, this is the son of David. We know from the scriptures that Jesus would come from the lineage of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that a son of his would rise up and that his kingdom, that his throne would be established forever. The prophets also said that Messiah would come from the line of David. So the, the Pharisees answered this question easy. But then Jesus asked them in verse 43, he said to them, so how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions because they don't want to be made to look stupid. Jesus was good at making the Pharisees look stupid. So I want you to notice that Jesus also confirms with the superscription that this psalm was written by David and there's no greater authority on this than Jesus. So we know that this is referring to the Messiah. Jesus ex tells us this is referring to the Messiah, and the, and the Pharisees, they don't argue this fact. The Pharisees knew that this was a messianic psalm pointing the Messiah. They didn't understand how it all worked. But Jesus was a son of David according to the flesh, but also David's Lord. So this, this makes me think of when, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said he was greater than Abraham. He said, because before Abraham was, I am. Or when John the Baptist said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. But we know John the Baptist was born before Jesus, according to the flesh. But John the Baptist says Jesus was before him. And he's referring to the pre-existence of Jesus, because we know Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And we know it's not just the pre-existence of Jesus that makes him greater than David, but also because he is the eternal Son of God. And Jesus referred to Psalm 110 again uh, during his trial before Caiaphas. In chapter 22, 
of his gospel in verses 67 and 71. The, the council in the trial asks him, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now they accused him of blasphemy for this, but we who believe, we heard it from his own lips. He is the one that's going to be seated at the right hand of God. He is the Son of God. And the right hand, this is the position of authority. It becomes more clear in the New Testament when, when the New Testament expands on this, but even in this psalm, we, we, we can see it. We can see it clearly. And the Son, and they ask him, are you the Son of God? So they, they assumed off of what he said that he was saying was the Son of God. The Son is the position, the, the right hand is associated with the Son. The Son represents the Father and is given all the power and authority of the Father. And on the day of Pentecost, when Peter gave his sermon, he quoted this verse. In chapter 2, uh, verses 29 through 36, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Because Jesus' body didn't rot in the grave because he was, he was risen. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God had made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus said when he ascended, when, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father that he would send the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit being poured out on Pentecost is also further evidence that Jesus, that he has ascended to the Father and is sitting at his right hand. It says, I will make all your enemies your footstool. So this is a display of absolute and complete victory. Imagine having your, your foot on the necks of your enemies. They're defeated. They're, they're, they're completely uh, helpless at that point. So when, when you see this, until I make your enemies your footstool, think absolute and complete victory of the Messiah, of our King Jesus utterly defeated. Also notice the posture of Christ. He is seated. He is resting from his work because his work has been completed on the cross. Remember Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Jesus gained victory on the cross and now he is seated while the Lord places all his enemies under his feet. 
as a footstool. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Here David is cheering on the Messiah. He says, the Lord sends forth from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Yahweh authorizes the scepter. Or the scepter is, or, or rod sometimes is, is referred to, is the power and authority of Christ's rule. Yahweh authorizes the scepter. And this ultimate king rules with all the authority of God himself. From Zion, his rule and his kingdom will spread throughout the whole earth. And I think this is most evident in the explosion of Christianity in the first century when the apostles began to spread the gospel and the gospel began to fill the earth and, 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 and so much of the world began to be one for Christ. I think that this when Jesus said, go and make disciples, this is how he sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter. The gospel will continue throughout the world, and more and more people will come to follow Christ as their king. But this rule is also in the midst of enemies. The apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. For, so this is the period we're in of the gospel reign, the gospel spreading throughout the whole earth. And enemies are being placed under the feet of Jesus. So this is the already but not yet kingdom that we talk about. The kingdom, when Christ came in the flesh, the, the, he inaugurated the kingdom, but the kingdom has not yet been consummated. He gained victory on the cross, but, but not all enemies are yet under his feet. So the French theologian Revitus wrote, I liked what he said here, it's a little lengthy, but I think it, it would be value to us this morning. From, he says, from his ruling in the midst of enemies, we learn that the kingdom of the cross, of persecutions and of dangers, enemies are never wanting, not only external adversaries, but also spiritual and eternal. Therefore, great sorrow is always awaiting the godly. In this most terrible conflict, however, their minds are lifted up by this consolation, that the rod of the kingdom is strong and cannot be overcome by any force or power. Yea, more, albeit assailed with contendings and all kinds of storms, it will continue stable, firm, and perpetual. And there will always be a church among men which will fear and worship this king because the experience of all the ages teaches that this kingdom has the more grown and increased the more it has been opposed. According to the saying of Basil, the church flourishes more by tribulation. So we know the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And remember, the, the gates are defensive, not offensive. So the gospel will continue to be preached, and we will continue to herald the good news of Jesus and plead with people to repent and submit to Jesus as king, even though we may face oppositions from our enemies, we will push forward Christ's rule, and Christ's rule will expand. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, and holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So we see here Christ's followers are not unwilling servants, but they are, are willing. The passage is literally, your people are free will offering. I think it's best understood how it reads here. 
Christ, people are, are willing. The people offer themselves freely. There's a lot of talk now because of all the conflict in Ukraine. We start hearing talk about conscription, about being drafted into the military. And when you have a draft, you oftentimes have unwilling soldiers. You have those that don't want to go to battle. Some people even flee uh, flee countries to avoid a draft. But in Christ's army, there are no unwilling soldiers. All are willing. Christ makes us all willing. And the text goes on to say, In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew, the dew of your youth will be yours. The general idea here is the holy splendor of Christ and the holiness in which his followers are clothed. Remember, as believers, we are clothed with the righteousness and holiness of Christ. And the womb of the morning, this is a picture of new life. The breaking of dawn, the sun begins to shine. It's a new day. There's freshness and newness. I think this is a picture of regeneration and new life, the new life that we have in Christ. And much like the dew, generation is a, uh, regeneration is a work from above. And, it, and it's somewhat mysterious. I don't really understand how the dew falls, but when I go out in the morning, I know that the dew, the dew has fallen. It's much the same way when we're born again. We're born from above and given new life. There's also this understanding of how numerous the dew is over the earth. So imagine all these little dew droplets covering blades of grass, the sun shining through them, and how numerous they are and how they cover everything. I think this is a picture of how numerous Christ's followers will be. Much like when God told Abraham that I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. I think David here is saying that Christ's soldiers, his followers will be as numerous as, as the dew is as covering the earth. So what do we do as willing soldiers in the army of King Jesus? And one thing we must do, we must share the good news of the kingdom. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. Jesus promises he will always be with us. So let's share the good news. Notice Peter's sermon we, we, that we read. Jesus preaches a risen and exalted Christ. Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father. Um, I'm taking a, an evangelism class right now. In, so I, I always... I've always liked gospel tracts. I always, uh, I always take a gospel track anytime anyone uh, offers me one. And something I've noticed about them is many of them don't even mention Jesus' perfect life or his death on the cross. Uh, a lot of, and, and, and I haven't seen hardly any gospel tracts that mention the resurrection of Christ and, and certainly not his exaltation to the Father, uh, or his ascension to the Father and his exaltation. And I think, I think without these, I think we have an incomplete gospel. So we should be sharing. We should be sharing the gospel. Like the dew covers the earth. I think we should cover Lake City with the gospel. We should cover our neighborhoods with the gospel. We should tell our friends about the gospel. We should tell our neighbors, our family, our coworkers about the gospel. If we say we love Christ 
and we, sh we should share this with others because he's king and he's on the throne and we're ambassadors of this king and we should share this. We should herald it. And what are some ways to do this? One way is to share your testimony. Share what God has done in your life. Share how Christ has saved you. We're told in Revelation that God's people overcame the great dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Testimonies can be powerful, so share it. It's by the, it's by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony that they come, overcome the great dragon. So share this testimony with others. Tell other people how Christ saved you and, and herald the kingdom. Tell them the good news that their sins can be forgiven. We'll, we'll, we'll move into verse 4 to the next oracle of the Lord. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This can seem strange because we, we don't usually, especially as Protestants, we don't have a lot of dealings with priests. When we think of priests, we think of someone in a, a funny hat or a long robe, maybe like doing blessings, sprinkling water. Um, and this priest has a funny name, Melchizedek. You're, like, you're not going to name your next kid Melchizedek. I, we're, we're having a baby. If it's a boy, we're not going to name him Melchizedek. So now I've announced to everybody. <laughs> so <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So we've already seen that this I got such a big mouth. <laughs> oh. We've already seen that this anticipated Messiah will be a Davidic king coming from the lineage of David, established by the oracle of God, authorized by the rule of God and his mighty scepter. And now, by another oracle of God, he is declared and authorized as priest. Now, this, this may have been shocking to David. because This was about a thousand years before Christ, but it was several centuries after the giving of the law. And the law stipulated that priests must come from the tribe of Levi, Levi but David was from the tribe of Judah. David was a great king, but David was no priest. But this anticipates a messianic Davidic king that would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. To understand this, we need to have some understanding of who Melchizedek was. Melchizedek is only mentioned three times in, uh, in the Bible, once in Genesis, once here in the Psalm, and then the, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has a lot to say about Melchizedek, and I'm not going to be able to cover all of this, so I encourage you to, uh, especially Hebrews chapter 7, you can read about Melchizedek. So first I'm going to refer back to Genesis chapter 14. In the battle of the kings in the valley of Sedim, Abraham's nephew, Lot, was taken captive. So Abram gathered 318 of his trained men in order to save his nephew Lot. And after Abraham 
gains victory in this battle and saves his nephew Lot, Melchizedek enters the story. It reads in verse 17, chapter 14, After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. That's all we have in the book of Genesis concerning Melchizedek. But we can, we can glean a few things from this text. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And he is king of Salem, which means peace. And most biblical scholars agree that this city of Salem was the ancient Jerusalem. And this king of Jerusalem was also priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek was both king and priest of Jerusalem. Now David wrote this psalm in the spirit. And David would have been familiar with the law. He would have read the story of Melchizedek. He would have, and he would have realized that he had a predecessor here. He, he is the first, he's not the first king that has been here in this city, Jerusalem. Melchizedek was here before him. And this king was also a priest. Although David was no priest, as he was from the tribe of Judah and not Levi, he looked forward to a son of his that would be both priest and king, and also his lord. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. It's a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. He is not Christ. He's just a picture of Christ. Much like Jesus is the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus is not a lamb, but the lamb is a picture of of Christ. Priest in the Latin is pontifex, which means bridge builder. The priest's job was to bring men to God. So this was very, very important. So while we, we often don't think of a priest being very important, in Judaism it was especially important because the priest is the one who built the bridge to God. Under the old covenant, the priests were the ones that carried out all the religious duties in the temple and made sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. For example, it was the high priest who went to the Holy of Holies with the blood sacrifice. So you wouldn't have went into the Holy of Holies yourself with the blood sacrifice. The high priest would go on, on your behalf. This is the way God designed it, although it was only a foreshadow of a new and better covenant in Christ. Much of the sacrificial system was to remind us that forgiveness is costly. The punishment of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This reminds, me of, uh, this reminds us of our sinfulness and God's holiness. Because of our sinfulness, we are separated from God, who is holy. The priest would symbolically place the sins of the people onto the animal, and then that animal would pay the price for the sin that causes death. 
But these animal sacrifices were insufficient. They had to be offered again and again and again. And Hebrews says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But here in this psalm, the Lord swears an oath that the Messiah would be priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, there would be no need for another priest. So even, even back here in the Psalms, there's this, there's this promise of a new priesthood. So we know that the old priesthood is going to pass away, and it has passed away. I'm going to read a, a section out of Hebrew, uh, Hebrews 7. And Hebrews does such a good exposition of this psalm. I want to just like read the whole thing, but that might take too long. So I'm going to read a few sections. And I encourage you again to read, read, it, read it for yourself. So in verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. But he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus, that, that Melchizedek didn't have, like, a mommy and a daddy. This doesn't mean Melchizedek is eternal, doesn't mean he didn't die. It's just the book of Genesis doesn't have any genealogy for him. So it's as if he had no beginning and no end. So again, it's just a picture of Christ who is eternal. And because Christ is eternal, he's a better high priest because in the, under the old covenant, we, we, there was priest after priest after priest because these priests at, at, a, at a certain age to become priest and then the priest retires, then you have a new priest. But Jesus, he will be high priest forever. And going into verse 4, See how great this man, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are descended from Abraham, but this man does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, and he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the writer of Hebrews is trying to show that Jesus is greater than Aaron, who was the, first, the brother of Moses, the first high priest, and, and greater than the Levitical priesthood. And how Jesus has made the Levitical priesthood obsolete. He also points out that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because it was Melchizedek that blessed Abraham and the greater blesses. Also, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, not the other way around. And the verse that Jamie read this morning during worship out of Hebrews is such a good verse. It almost summarizes all of Psalm uh, 110 in just a few verses, uh, much more concise than I'm doing this morning. So in verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Christ's sacrifice of himself was sufficient for all sins, past, present, and future. There is no need for him to, to keep on being sacrificed because the one sacrifice was perfect and sufficient. And notice here that Christ, he's the high priest. He's also the sacrifice. He's also the Lamb of God. And we know that when he entered the holy place, the holy place that the high priest, that the Levitical high priest entered in, behind the curtain, that was just a foreshadow of the true holy place that Christ entered in when he presented himself to the Father. And we remember on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, showing that this is the work of God and showing that we now have access to God through Christ and his work on the cross. So Jesus is our great high priest. He is our, the great bridge builder to God. Another thing that makes him the, a perfect high priest is he is both God and man. So he's the perfect mediator between God and man. He's the God-man. I'll move into verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. While the Lord now reigns in the midst of his enemies, there will come a day, the day of his wrath, the Bible calls it, when he will execute judgment among the nations, when he will utterly shatter all of his enemies. The picture given is like that of clay pots shattering. This is the way Jesus will shatter all of his enemies. And you may ask, why, why does he tarry? Why doesn't he just shatter all of them now? Why has he not already destroyed all of his enemies? Peter tells us in his second epistle, he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Because some of Christ's sheep have not yet heard his voice. Many have not, many have not obeyed God and are enemies of God. Some of you here today may be enemies of God. But God desires that you come to repentance. And if you reject such a great salvation, you will be shattered to pieces like these verses describe and suffer eternal destruction. This picture we're given is dire for the enemies of God. The kings and chiefs that seem to have so much power will be destroyed. The, tyrant, the tyrants and rulers of countries around the world that reject the Lord will be utterly shattered. And the king here is not just shattering earthly rulers, and chiefs, but also rulers of the spiritual realm, Satan and demons. The language in verse 6, he will, chatter, he will shatter chiefs. The word chiefs in the Hebrew is literally the head. He will shatter the head. You may recall the in uh, Genesis uh, 3.15, the first gospel, when God tells Adam and Eve, 
or tell the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent, that is Satan, we are promised all the way back in Genesis that he will be crushed under the foot of the Messiah. And at the end of the, the book of Romans, Paul writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In this last verse, he would drink from the brook by the way, therefore he would lift up his head. The main point here is just that of victory. The heads over the wide earth have been crushed and shattered. This king's head is lifted up. His head is lifted up in victory. So here is this king that has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. His mighty scepter and rule has gone out to the ends of the earth. He has a multitude of willing followers who have covered the earth. On the day of the, his wrath, this king will shatter all other kings. He will execute judgment among the nations, piling up corpses and shattering chiefs. Jesus Christ is the head-shattering, serpent-crushing, omnipotent king that destroys all of his enemies. But, but he is also a compassionate, sympathetic, and loving high priest. Jesus is a great warrior that shatters his enemies like clay pots. But he is the good shepherd that has compassion and love for his sheep. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus loves us and he cares for us. He did the hard work that we could not do ourselves, that we may rest in him. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He loves you and desires for you to repent. His yoke is easy because he bears the heavy load for us. He is the good shepherd and he cares for his sheep and he does not lose any of his sheep. The great high priest is sympathetic to us. The word of God says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. So all the turmoil in the, war, in the world now, we have war, pandemic, division, strife, turmoil. Even, even nuclear holocaust is not an unreasonable worry nowadays. There's warning of possible famine. There's so much we could fear. We could, we could be filled with anxiety and worry and on top of this, we have fake news, misinformation, disinformation, and we don't even know what to, what to believe. But I'm here to tell you today that we can believe God's word. God's word is absolutely true, and we can always believe that, and there's no misinformation in this. This we can hope in. And all the enemies of Jesus will be cast under his feet. All our fears, all our sins, all wicked rulers, and everything else, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. He's already won. 
And we don't need to fear. I'm going to quote Hebrews again. And God has sworn and will not change his mind. Jesus will be a priest forever. God's word tells us that our great high priest is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is the great bridge builder to God. He has built a bridge to God through his perfect life, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. This bridge cannot be destroyed. But because of your sins and your wickedness, you've been, you were separated from God and doomed to eternal hellfire. You had no hope, and there is no other hope but in Christ. And many of us have placed our hope and trust in Christ, and we have that eternal security. We have Christ as our shepherd, and we can trust in him, and we know he's not going to lose us. And we have him as our great high priest, and we know he's always living to make intercession for us. We have such a great hope in our great king and priest. But if you've not repented of your sins, then I plead with you to come to him today, because like his enemies, you will also be shattered like clay pots. But he doesn't desire this. He desires for you to repent and turn to him and place his trust in him. He's gentle and lowly of heart. He loves you. He wants to care for you like one of his sheep in his flock. So we're thankful today for Christ. And I hope that you all are encouraged by this, that we know we don't have to worry because we have such a great king and high priest. I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you uh, for, this, for this psalm. And I hope that we can be excited about this psalm. I hope that I have given at least a surface level understanding of it, Lord. I pray that we worship would just just be in awe of this great king and priest that we have. We thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy, for your grace. And I pray that if there's any that have not trusted in the great high priest, that they would turn to him, because he is the great bridge builder to God, and he can save to the uttermost. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.